So yeah, Psalm 73, we're going to read the whole lot, and it's a wonderful psalm. If you don't know it, you're in for a treat. Uh, This is Psalm 73, it's a psalm of Asaph, and he says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths they claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They go on amassing wealth. Surely, in vain, have I kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They're like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet, I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. And this is the word of the Lord. Told you it was good. So good. Medicine has been rich for my soul over many, many 
years. Morning. Oh, that's very loud. Uh, I'm going to tell you about one of my uh, least favourite words. I hate this word because it is horribly overused. It is what I call the J word. I don't know if you can guess what it is already. Uh, to be honest, I don't even like to, to speak this word. Uh, if you switch on your television on a Friday night and uh, you tune into X Factor or, or Britain's Got Talent or something like that, you will hear this word kind of every five seconds minimum. They absolutely love using this word on those uh, talent shows. And uh, what will happen is uh, one of the contestants will kind of appear on the stage and uh, they'll, they'll kind of be asked kind of, how did you get here? What's, what's your story? And um, they'll start explaining. They'll explain kind of where they came from. And uh, they'll say, oh, at first, uh, no one believed in me. Oh, it was really terrible. No one believed in my talent. But then, key moment, I looked within, and I found a special talent, an amazing thing to share with everyone. Thank goodness, oh, everyone's loving it. Ant and Deck, they're kind of tearing up, they love it. Amanda Holden, she's all over it. And, uh, and Simon Cowell will then invariably use a word like this, and he will say, what an incredible journey. Journey is the word that I hate so much. It's, it's a really overused word that we love using the word journey. Uh, because it kind of is a bit nebulous, really. It doesn't really mean anything, but they love using the word journey. But this morning, I'm going to use the word journey because our, uh, our guy this morning that we're going to have a look at, the guy who wrote this psalm, really has been on a pretty incredible journey, uh, an emotional and spiritual journey. If he went on X Factor, he would be the, the journeyest contestant of all. He loves a journey. Um, but actually, what, what he's been through... Um, is probably something that most of us here this morning have been through to some extent, um, something that we've all had to, to wrestle with, something that has affected us deeply. It's a question that we might word like this. Why does God let good things happen to bad people? Why is their life easy and my life is Heart. That's a personal question for many of us this morning, isn't it? How come these bad people do bad things and they get away with it? Uh, the person we're going to have a look at this morning, he's seen some really wicked people do some really wicked things and then nothing has happened. What's going on? How's that fair? Well, turn with me to uh, Psalm 73, and we're going to have a look at this guy called Asaph. So as Neil said, we're going to pause our series in John, and we're going to have a look at, I think, five psalms. And all of these five psalms are written by this guy called Asaph. He's actually written Psalm 73 to 83. This is his kind of little patch of the book of Psalms. Most of them are written by David, but these are written by this guy called Asaph. Uh, he is a priest. You can read about that in 1 Chronicles 16. He's actually the chief priest. He has a special responsibility over all the people uh, for praising God. His day job is worship. So every day he's there in the temple praising God. In addition to that, he is an Israelite. He's an Israelite. And in Israelite history, 
a massive, massive part of it is about looking backwards. Um, That's because in Israelite history, you can read about this in the Old Testament, uh, God has rescued the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt, and he's taken them through um, through the wilderness, and they've ended up in the promised land. And constantly in Israel's history, they're constantly looking back and looking at those key events and thanking God, saying, God, we're so thankful that you've set us apart and called us out of slavery, and you've put us in this promised land. And so they are thankful to God. And that's what Asaph's job is, basically. It's being thankful. And so he starts off his psalm, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He's not bragging. He's just saying something that is true. God has been good to Israel. God has this special relationship with these people. But pretty quickly, Asaph's got a problem as he looks kind of outside his, his job, he's, he's in the temple praising God, but he looks outside and he sees something that troubles him. Out there in the world, there are people who are not good. There are people who are wicked. I'm here worshipping God, who's been so good to us, but there are a bunch of people who aren't worshipping God and it seems to be going well for them. He says in verse 3, I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looks at these people and he sees they're wicked, and despite that, they're living the life of Riley. It's going great. Being wicked is wonderful. Oh, you live such a carefree, happy life. Isn't that great? But Asaph knows that's not right. He's deeply, deeply upset by this. He's really troubled by it. There's something so not right about this. So he spends these kind of 10 verses, verses 3 to 12, all about, God, these people are so wicked, and he describes their wickedness in detail. He's got three concerns, three, three complaints, really. Complaint number one, these wicked people live comfortable lives when other people don't. So he says in verse 4, they have no struggles, their bodies are healthy and strong. When you're only looking out for yourself, life is pretty easy. Life is good. These people are self-centered. They're just thinking about themselves. And so all their money and their food and their resources all just get spent on, on me. I don't need to share it. You have a look at verse 7. It's a bit of a hard verse to understand and translate. If you look at your footnotes, you'll see there's a, another translation which is that I prefer, which is, their eyes bulge with fatness. Um, so if you think about someone whose eyes bulge with fatness, I don't know who springs to mind, this is who uh, sprang to my mind. When you think, think about that, think Jabba the Hutt. He's not exactly a, uh, a model for um, self-control and generosity, is he? If you've watched, watched the films, that's, that's not really what he does. It's meant to be a really ugly picture. It's meant to be horrible. God's people, you see, aren't supposed to be like that. They're supposed to be generous. But these people aren't, and it's going well for them. Complaint number two is they speak arrogantly. They think so little of everyone else. Everyone else is rubbish compared to them, and so they tell them all about it. So they scoff in verse 8. They speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. They've got more stuff than everyone else, and they love telling them all about it. But verse 10 
has this idea that they've kind of got this, um, this lovely idyllic life, this kind of lovely uh, pool in the desert, and people are kind of coming towards that, and, and they actually find it quite attractive. God's people are actually getting drawn in to their wicked way of living. But potentially worse than any of this is complaint number three, which is the fact that they blaspheme God. Their explicit attitude to God is that they are great and he is not so great. Life is going really well for them, and so they assume that God's not going to cause them any bother. Why worry about God when life is great? What's the point? And so perhaps the most damning verse of all, verse 11, they say, how would God know? Does the most I know anything? The um, technical term, if you want it, I think would be something like uh, functional atheists. There might be a God, not sure if there is. Either way, doesn't matter. I'm sure he's not bothered with me. Why would God care what I do? But there's a really sad irony here, isn't there? What's the answer to their rhetorical question? Yeah. God absolutely knows. The Most High knows all things. And yet despite this, their life is unchanged. And Asaph looks at this, and he's deeply troubled. But also, at the same time, if he's honest, their life does look pretty good. I mean, it's comfortable, looks pretty easy, actually quite an attractive lifestyle. And so he comes to God and he confesses, God, this has rather knocked me off course. It's kind of completely thrown my understanding of how the world is supposed to work. Like, what's going on? God is meant to be good to those who praise and worship him, right? We're here being thankful. That's how it's supposed to work. But these people are being intentionally not thankful, God hating, and their life is going great. Like, what, how does that make sense? That's not fair. Surely God should bless people who are good to him and curse people who aren't. That, that would just make sense, wouldn't it? If this is God's world and he's king of the whole world, why does he let these wicked people prosper? I wonder, have you ever wondered that. But Asaph, this is not a, a philosophical question. <laughs> it's a really personal one. It's actually deeply impacted his faith. Why does God let wicked people get away with it? We could ask that question about our world today, couldn't we? Why is there a war going on in Ukraine? <laughs> Why has God let Vladimir Putin send all those soldiers into Ukraine? He could have stopped it if he wanted to, right? I mean, he's God. Maybe the question is a bit closer to home. Maybe um, one of your friends is in an abusive relationship. Why has God let that happen? Maybe you know someone who's been scammed out of their savings by some unnamed person on the internet. It's not right, is it? It's profoundly wrong. How has God let it happen? Doesn't God care about evil? 
Asaph is really upset by this problem. And so in verse 13, he kind of, he basically says, what's the point? He says, surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. Why bother doing the right thing if wicked people are wicked and their life is better? I get no benefit from doing the right thing. Surely it'd be easier to ignore God's rules. Surely that'd be a better thing to do. And for many of us, that is a real temptation, isn't it? Certainly is for me. Sometimes God's ways seem really inconvenient. They get in the way. Isn't it much easier to tell a white lie to a colleague instead of saying something you know is going to make you unpopular? It's much easier just to break the speed limit when you know there's no camera there. You're a busy person. You need to get from A to B. No one's going to know. It can be really easy to get angry to make people do what you want. It's much quicker than being patient and walking them through it. It's just easier to kind of shout a little bit and, and get them to do what you want. Or maybe it's more about principles. If only God hadn't said what he actually has said about marriage. If only Jesus hadn't said all that stuff about hell or money. You know, as Asaph looks at his own life, he thinks every day I get the same old problems and my life is harder than those people over there. But in this psalm, there is good news. Actually, I think this is one of the the best reasons to read the Psalms. This is why the Psalms are such a blessing to us. Because what does Asaph do next? He takes what's on his heart and he brings it to God. He doesn't feel he can share this with anyone else, but he does know that God wants to hear it. These thoughts that are going around his head and causing him such trouble and anguish he knows it's not going to make God anxious. It's not going to trouble God. God can bear the load that he can't bear. These frustrations, anxieties. Asaph knows God actually wants, God delights to listen to the cries of his heart. And you know we have the same God, don't we? He's a God we don't always understand. His ways are above our ways, his thoughts beyond our thoughts. God's operating on kind of a higher level to us. We're never going to understand what God does. Of course we're not. He's God and we're not. But at the same time, he is a God who wants us to bring our thoughts, our concerns, even our frustrations humbly to him. And that's what Asaph does. Instead of running away from God, he humbly comes into God's presence. And this is the great turning point of this psalm. As he, I get the impression he kind of drags himself into God's presence reluctantly. But as he does, verse 16, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Asaph reminds me a little bit of uh, someone else in the Bible. I don't know if he's remind you of this person. 
uh, someone who uh, suffered really significantly and was really confused about what happened. Why did God let evil things happen? Um, about well, multiple hundred years before Asaph lived a guy named Job. And Job was a really, really godly guy, really stand-up guy, who also happened to be very, very wealthy. But one day, almost overnight, he loses everything. His wealth, his family, his health, all gone. And just like Asaph, he's really confused by this. God, why have you let this happen? But just like Asaph, he, he brings his concerns to God. And amazingly, mercifully, God actually shows up to answer Job. But if you've read the book of Job, you'll know it's not exactly the answer that Job was expecting. Instead of God explaining to Job the kind of very rational, straightforward reasons why God had done this, God shows up, sits Job down, and he says, Job, I'm so much bigger than you are. Job, compared to me, you're so small. Job, do you see that, that continent over there? Did, did, did you make that? No. How about this tiny bee? Did you design that, Job? Oh. How about that ocean over there? Is that yours? No. That gorilla, did you design that? No. And as Job realizes just how small he is compared to God, he starts to, to understand God's ways are beyond his comprehension, and that's okay. In fact, that's just how it should be. Asaph comes to a slightly different answer, but it basically comes from the same place. It comes from a place of realizing that he is small and God is big. Asaph used to think it was hopeless to live in a world uh, where doing evil doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if you do evil. What's the point? And he's right about that. And you can ask the author of Ecclesiastes who spends chapter after chapter saying, yeah, it's pointless to live in a world if there is no God. But as Asaph comes into God's presence, he realizes that is not the case. God can see what these wicked people get up to. And contrary to what they think, God knows all of it. And he will do something about it. Do wicked people prosper forever without consequence? No. In God's world, no, they don't. Verse 18, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed? Completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you'll despise them as fantasies. It can be really hard, can't it, to think about um, God's judgment. I certainly find it much easier to think about God's uh, mercies and his grace. But actually for Asaph, God's judgment is a comfort. Will God let these evil people go unpunished? No. God will not let this slander, this, this blasphemy go ignored. He won't. And for Asaph, this is actually really good news because he knows that he doesn't have to worry about the success of these people. Well, God will take care of it. It's outside of his control anyway. 
And because he knows who God is, he knows that God will do what is right. God is perfectly fair and just. He might not see that, might not appear in this life, but he knows that one day they will have to give an account before God. They'll stand before the creator of the universe and he'll ask them, did you love your neighbor as you loved yourself? Did you love me with all your heart and mind and soul and strength? And that's what Jesus said is the standard. And Asaph knows, well, they won't stand for long. Just like a bad dream. When you're in a nightmare, it feels real, doesn't it? It's very vivid and scary. But as soon as you wake up, it's gone. Just like a bad dream. So as Asaph is thinking about this and thinking about God's justice, he realizes God will do what is right. And that leads him further on his journey when he realizes, oh, I was so foolish before. That was so silly of me to, to doubt that God is good. Of course he is. He says, I was senseless and ignorant. I didn't understand God. I don't know what I was talking about. And he comes to a place of repentance. He realizes, just like Job, oh, I know so little about God. But God knows all things. If you're a Christian this morning, then your relationship with God is not one of equality. We are not partners with God who both have a kind of 50-50 split, equal input. We don't get to kind of collaborate on decision-making together and kind of both share. We don't get to recommend to God how to run his world. But as we realize that, and I for one have to remind myself of that every day, we realize how small we are, how insignificant we are compared to God. But we come to that place that Asaph comes to. We are small. God doesn't actually need us for anything. And yet, he chooses to. God freely lowers himself to our level, to descend from the heavens, to come down to us. Not that he needed to or ought to, because he loves us, so that he can walk with us. And this is this marvelous realization Asaph gets to in verse 23. Yeah, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Asaph had previously just met God in the sanctuary, in the temple. But now he realizes what God is always with him. He realizes that he doesn't have to go to some special place to get to God. That God comes down to him. And his response is to erupt with praise. He's so excited. What an amazing thing that the God of the universe will come down to me. In verse 23, he says, he holds me with his right hand. Imagine for a minute you're a soldier in Asaph's day. So you've got a sword strapped to your left hand side so you can kind of draw it across your body like that. But now imagine that your hand is being held. Well, you can't get to your sword now. Your hand is being held. Is this a problem? Well, no. Because it's God who is holding your hand. He is your defense and protection. You don't need to fight for yourself because God is fighting for you. Verse 24, he says, he guides me with his counsel. God is wise and he's told us how to live in his world. 
We don't need to try and guess the path to take. He is our wise guide who goes ahead of us, who leads us along paths of righteousness. And finally, it says, he will take me into glory. Do I have to worry about the future? No. God is taking care of it. And a place is being prepared for me where one day I will dwell with God forever, along with all God's people. Whom have I in heaven but you? Earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I don't need anything else. God is all that I need. And this is what following God looks like for his people. It's coming to that realization with Asaph that ultimately nothing else really matters. That God has given us all we need. That he is our protector and our counselor and our friend. We don't need anything more. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? Nothing in my hand I bring simply to your cross I cling. We don't bring anything to God. But what a glorious thing it is when he comes down to us. I don't know how much Asaph uh, knew about uh, the God who uh, comes down to him. He didn't know the name Jesus, <laughs> but we do, don't we? The one who Paul describes as in very nature God, yet did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself what? Nothing. He comes down to us. Christ Jesus, our good shepherd, comes down from heaven to walk with us. And as Psalm 23 reminds us, he does walk with us even through those dark valleys. Maybe this morning you, uh, you realize that um, if you were to stand before God today, well, actually you wouldn't be able to stand. You wouldn't be able to um, point to enough good stuff that you've done Bible says we all have to stand before God to give an account for the life that we've lived. We'll all face the same questions. Have we loved our neighbor as ourselves? Have we loved God? How are we going to answer that? Well, no, of course not. If that's you this morning realizing that, then Asaph gives us an example of what to do. Don't run away from God. Come towards God with humility. Acknowledge the sins and failings in your life. Realize that there's so much about God you didn't know and thought wrong. And ask your creator to forgive you and come and walk with you. Not a single one of us actually has anything good to bring to God. But as we come to God, empty-handed, we can be confident that he will accept us, that he delights in coming down to us. Maybe this morning, like Asaph, you're on a bit of a journey. Uh, maybe there are things about God that you find really, really hard, things that you're really doubting. 
things um, in the world. You just don't understand. Why has God let that happen? I just don't get it. Maybe this morning you're wondering whether there is a God at all who's in charge of this world. I mean, it seems so messy and chaotic and broken. If that's you this morning, please learn from Asaph. Please don't run from God, but run towards God and humbly ask God to draw near to you. If you've got questions about God this morning, please, please don't sit on them. There are so many people in this church who would absolutely love to sit down with you, talk through your, your questions. I'm sure that Neil would absolutely love to do that, to make time for you, because ultimately we want to, um, in this church, we want to draw near to God together. We want to see how it is good news to do that. A God whose ways are beyond our ways, whose thoughts are beyond our thoughts. We don't understand God, but one thing we do know He is faithful and patient. And as Asaph starts his psalm, God is indeed good. Let me pray. Father God, I thank you that you are the good God. Lord, I thank you so much that there are things about you that I completely do not understand because you are God and I am not. Lord, I thank you that your ways are beyond my ways. Lord, your thoughts are so much higher than my thoughts. And yet, Lord, I thank you that you are the awesome God who is transcendent, rules over the whole universe, and yet you're also the God who comes down to us, Lord. Lord, I thank you for your patience and your mercy. Lord, that you bear with us when we don't understand. Lord, you walk with us through those dark valleys. Amen.